0: The man who says the president got it wrong on IS. Breckham Beacon's deaths. Why is the MOD off the hook? Three rifles shooting bricks in Louisiana.
1: The coalition flavor that uh, this rotation offers is just outstanding.
0: And Super Tuesday. Trump and Clinton on a roll for the White House. But who will be the next commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces? A former advisor to the US government says the West has got it all wrong in the fight against IS. David Kilcullen was a senior counterinsurgency advisor to General David Petraeus in two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight, where he helped design and monitor the Iraq war troop surge. Well let's talk to David now. Good to speak to you today. Thank you, Why do you think the West's military and political leadership that led us into Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and Syria have so far failed to anticipate the consequences?
2: Well, I think that the master error from which basically everything proceeds in the last fifteen years or so is the decision to invade Iraq in two thousand and three. If we had not done that, there would be no ISIS today, and that's very clear. But I think we compounded that initial error by getting out of Iraq after successfully suppressing Al Qaeda in Iraq, uh, leaving basically nothing behind and allowing ISIS to build into, uh, out of out of the remnants of AQI, and also by essentially standing by as uh, Syria uh, spun out of control. So I think you can say that 2003 was the initial era, but we then compounded that in 2011 and again in 2013 with decisions that were made by, in fact, a completely different set of um, British and American decision-makers.
0: Okay, and you were recruited by the Americas as an advisor. What were you saying that they wanted to hear, and did they really listen?
2: They did really listen. I mean, I think that the big thing that a lot of us did in the 2005 period was to introduce a strategy that some people called disaggregation, which was the idea of breaking up the very unified structure of Al-Qaeda and trying to then deal with the isolated threat by helping local partners handle it. And I think that could have worked. It would probably have worked better if we'd um, kept more troops in Iraq to sustain the effort. But the big thing that undermined it was the emergence of things like the iPhone and the spread of the internet and this massive explosion in connectivity that allowed groups like ISIS to use things like social media mm. um, to, to really run a disaggregated group in a completely different way and all none of that existed on 9-11 of course.
0: Have you, I mean obviously you're critical about the, the, the way the fight against IS is being led have you ever given advice which has not been listened to and well, you've been proven right afterwards?
2: Let me say that I, this is not me um, patting myself on the back and saying that everybody else has got it wrong, in many ways it's a mayor culpa because what I do is I explain in the book that I wrote about many of the decisions that I was involved in which seemed like a good idea at the time but later turned out um, to be misguided and some of those you know, we've already mentioned um, but no, I mean I've, I've always found the American leadership very, very open to advice on what's happening on the ground the problem is that Um, we're sort of path-dependent now, right? Having gone into Iraq, our options are much more limited than they otherwise would have been. And then having done the things we've done since 2011 in response to Syria, we're now facing a series of basically uh, really bad choices. Mm. So I think even with the best will in the world, it's hard to see how to get ourselves out of a lot of the things that have
1: have come up since then.
0: Our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, has been listening to this and he's in the studio as well.
1: I've been looking at 14 um, past operations Most of them uh, end up with a piece of paper at the bottom which says, uh, we had this ambition, but we didn't provide the resources to fulfill Mm. it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
2: It does. In fact, I make that same argument uh, in the book. I say that we've had a, a continuous mismatch of very ambitious and overarching goals, and we've never been able to or willing to commit the kinds of resources that would be needed to um, achieve those goals The only real time in the last 10 years When we've had an alignment of ends, ways and means Was in Iraq during the surge in 2007 Which not coincidentally is the
1: only time we've seen significant success Do you know, there's, a, there's one point, isn't there When the guy in the street looks around and says Alright, there's a whole bunch of advisors And the president or whoever says We've got a problem here and we may have to send an op- put an operation together So in come the advisers, whether they're civilian, military, political, etc. And they go through the whole procedure, and as it, it did in the United Kingdom, and it did in the United States. And then somebody makes the decision, here we go, we're off. All those ways we've done it have been wrong. Why? Who hasn't listened?
2: Well, I think that there are some very different, let's call them pathologies of decision-making in different administrations. In the Obama... Well, let's go back. In the Bush administration, the problem that President Bush had was that he delegated a lot of decision-making authority to people like Donald Rumsfeld and Vice President Cheney. And it was only at the end of 2006 that he fired Rumsfeld, got, pushed Cheney to the side and took direct control of the conflict himself. Um, President Obama has been quite the opposite. He's tended to centralise decision-making in the hands of two or three key people. And so that what advisers end up doing is simply briefing relatively uninformed decision-makers who then go off into a closed-door room and come back with a a pronouncement on what's going to happen.
0: David Kilcullen, there's currently an inquiry by the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee into Britain's planning and involvement in Libya and Syria. Have you got a view on the way Britain does this?
2: I think the UK has got um, a much more robust tradition of civil service advice and of permanent uh, senior civil service that provide, you know, unvarnished and, and impartial advice. Um, I also think that the tradition of cabinet responsibility in the UK protects people from some of the... You know more excessive things that have happened in the states, but I. Christopher
0: shaking his head here in the studio at the moment. I'm well, not sure he's convinced on this one. I think
2: I think Brits are very self-critical, and it's easy to sit back and say, you know, we did this wrong, we did that wrong. But also, don't forget, UK has been a junior partner in this, and so it's very difficult for a country like Australia or the UK to have a consistent and workable strategy if your major ally doesn't, you know.
0: I mean, you, you said earlier that, that some of the advice you given turned out to be wrong in the event. I mean, is there a problem about being reactive and changing the plan quickly enough when you're in a situation?
2: Yeah, look, I think that is part of it. And I talk about that in the book too. But I, th- I think there's also this idea that we're sort of continuously coming up with solutions to deal with the previous set of challenges. And then by the time we've put those solutions in place, the challenges have shifted.
1: I'm just a bit bothered that and the, the bottom line of all this is that we are, by and large, uh, badly led and thinking in terms of uh, warfare that might have been at some time. But on this thing about the... I, I remember a bunch of us were wheeled through Whitehall in 2002. A bunch of the, us? You know, a, bunch of, a bunch of whom, bun, exactly? A bunch of people, <laughs> I mean, analysts, and, analysts and academics, etc., RUSI people, uh, through, through Whitehall, including Downs, Downing Street. And we put all the in our own ways, all our different opinions in our own areas of uh, why it might be not yet set to go into Iraq. And at the end of the day, the man stood up and said, but you don't see, he's a very nasty man. Good afternoon, thank you for coming. Mm. And that was the principle of warfare.
0: Oh, David Culkin, can can you give us a chink of hope here?
2: Yeah. No, look, I think we're, there there is some hope. Firstly, um, we are making actually quite significant progress on the ground in Iraq. I didn't cover that in the book because it really, I finished writing the book in November, which was about when some of that um, stuff began to happen. And since then, we've actually seen ISIS roll back quite a lot in Iraq. Um, I, I, it's going to be hard to sustain that without um, more effort, but I think that's certainly a glimmer of hope. Another one, oddly enough, is in Syria. I think we're actually closer now than we have been for several years to finding a way to uh, a, an international um, process that can result in peace in Syria. Still a very long way away, but it's a hell of a lot better than it was. Well, can I say that on radio? I don't know. It's, <laughs> Just uh, it's, all right, sorry. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot better than it has been in the last couple of years. All right, David
0: Kilcullen, thank you. You can read his analysis in his new book, Blood Year, Islamic State and the Failures of the War on Terror rep with Still to come, Super Tuesday and stupendous Louisiana. And Israel now has David Sling. But who is Goliath?
3: BFBS, Sit
0: so, Christopher, let's look at some other stories around today. Uh, NATO's Supreme Commander says President Putin is stirring up the refugee problem in Europe. What's he been saying?
1: General um, Philip Breedlove, secure. he says that, that Putin and Assad are causing a lot of the refugee problem in a classical way of moving people in a mass way, and therefore they disrupt any military difficulties that they might face with the West, say, in Ukraine or, or, or whatever. But
0: hasn't that always been thus since this civil war has been going on? Well,
1: no, it hasn't actually, it, only largely since the, the Russians uh, got involved. You have to remember here that um, what was happening is that uh, General Breedloff, was giving evidence to um, the Senate Armed Services Committee... And therefore, he was giving it from the American point of view. But of the Germans have got a similar point of view, and the Germans and Breedloff get on very well.
0: And David Cameron has been in talks today with the French President Francois Hollande. Um, it's been billed that it's about the EU referendum, but but is it?
1: Well, yeah, it's got to be partly that, hasn't it? Because he'll, come, he'll He's made a statement, you know, and when in the papers in the morning say we know French and the German, uh, French and the British we get on all right about this, and uh, Hollande is 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 backing. Uh, the U- uh, Cameron's view on vote yes for the referendum, stay in Europe, mm. but the real story that's going on there is an agreement to send more troops, including British troops the Eastern Mediterranean to help contain the refugee problem mm. There's
0: also this mention of this sort of drone deal to develop this prototype that can fire weapons, an agreement between France and and the UK isn't there? Yes um,
1: yeah, but, That's
0: proof that that would work regardless though presumably of the EU in or out You
1: don't do a deal until the deal is done is is the arms salesman thing until we know it works mm. uh it, and that that is the sort of if you like the announcement, you have to have an announcement when you go to a presidential prime ministerial meeting
0: so that's that's work in progress is it?
1: Uh, it's work in very far progress as mm. well.
0: North Korea, the dear leader, Kim Jong-un, has been letting off more than steam over the new UN sanctions. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write those words, by the way.
1: <laughs> I, don't know, some, yeah, I don't know who writes this stuff, but, you know, not long. Not long no,
0: I don't know. Not long now, not Someone long now. Someone with some suggestions to make. No, so, a so hand please enlighten
1: us. Okay, what it is, is the, the Chinese and the Americans managed to get through a formal word through the United Nations, which increases the sanctions over North Korea for testing a, what they said was a, uh, a nuclear weapon in, uh, in January. Mm-hmm. And these include searching every ship that goes through into, into North Korea, etc. Uh, Kim Jong-un, the dear leader, uh, said, OK, this is what I think of you, and set off a barrage of short-range missiles into the North Korean Sea. He was allowed to do that because short-range missiles are not covered by arms control treaties.
0: Now, families are calling for a change in the law after the Ministry of Defence escaped with a reprimand over the deaths of three Army reservists during an SAS recruitment exercise. Lance Corporal Craig Roberts, Lance Corporal Edward Mayer and Corporal James Dunsby were taking part in an SAS training exercise in the Brecon Beacons in 2013 on the hottest day of the year. The Health and Safety Executive issued the MOD with a so-called Crown censure over the failings, saying that were it not for Crown immunity the case would have gone to prosecution with a realistic prospect of securing a conviction. Well, a little earlier I spoke to legal commentator Joshua Rosenberg. I asked him to explain what Crown censure actually meant.
4: As a government department, the Ministry of Defence can't be prosecuted in the normal way. Uh, It would be philosophically wrong for the Secretary of State representing the Queen to be prosecuted in the Queen's courts at the instigation of the Queen and from a practical point of view it wouldn't achieve anything because the only penalty would be a fine and that would go back to the state so the money would just be going round and round. Given that uh, a system has developed whereby a public body, a Crown body, a government department can be censured, can be told off, can be wrapped over the knuckles... Uh, Not actually punished, but nevertheless found effectively to have broken the law. The crucial thing is that the Ministry of Defence is not exempt from its responsibilities under health and safety law. It was required to comply with the law, but if it fails to do so, it can't be punished. And what this Crown Censure means is that the health and safety executive think that they would have had enough evidence to bring a criminal prosecution if the Ministry of Defence was not exempt from the law.
0: The concern, of course, would be that without some kind of big punishment, the, the incentive to actually make the necessary changes to stop these kind of things happening again is
4: perhaps less. I suppose that's understandable, but nevertheless, this is embarrassing. We are talking about this. The MOD knows that it failed to meet its responsibilities. It hasn't denied that, and there's a formal censure of it to this effect. I don't think a, a fine would have made any great difference. I suppose what people want is to see individuals punished, but uh, as far as we know, a health and safety executive doesn't have any evidence against any particular individuals. If it did, then they could be brought before the courts. But because this is a, a corporate failing, uh, the only body that can be... Effectively held to account is the Ministry or the Secretary of State representing the Ministry, I suppose, if you like, uh, and really there is no way to punish that person or that body apart from the bad publicity uh, which we are giving it now.
0: A A lawyer for the families has said they would like the MOD to be subject to the Corporate Homicide Act and the Corporate Manslaughter Act. Could it ever happen? And if not, what would have to change for it to be able to happen?
4: It would require legislation. It would require an Act of Parliament, and uh, there's no particular reason why that shouldn't happen. I mean, You get bodies like the police, which can be uh, found guilty of, of corporate homicide, uh, for example.
0: So why not the MOD, potentially? Well,
4: it's a political decision. Um, as I say, you would have to deal with the conceptual problem that it would be the Crown prosecuting a Crown body, you would have to deal with the financial point that the only punishment is a fine and the fine would go back to the state. But I suppose it would show that uh, the MOD is not above the law It would show that they were being held to account and it might give some satisfaction to the relatives of the people who died.
0: Just supposing that a private contractor were in charge of the training on behalf of the MOD, what is the legal situation if something goes wrong in that situation?
4: I think a private contractor could be prosecuted in the normal way. I think it's only the Ministry of Defence, as as an emanation of the Crown, that can't face prosecution. And you might say that was an anomaly... Uh, But there it is. Uh, If uh, people think the law should be changed, then that's what will have to be done.
0: So, from now onwards, do you think this is the end of the issue regarding this particular case in the Brecon Beacons, or do you think there will be some kind of legal development?
4: I'm sure that people will be campaigning for a change in the law, and they will have to demonstrate what would be achieved by changing the law and by bringing a prosecution. Uh, Ultimately, the crucial thing is that lessons are learned, and one hopes that the MOD have learned the lessons uh, from the censure uh, that it's received.
0: That was the legal commentator Joshua Rosenberg. Well in a statement the MOD says it acknowledges the censure and has apologized for the failures identified by the coroner and the HSE. It goes on to say that they've made several improvements to reduce the risks on such exercises and it says the defence safety authority is conducting a service inquiry to identify any further lessons to prevent a recurrence of this kind of tragedy. British soldiers have been on exercise in America's Deep South. The 3rd Battalion, the Rifles embedded with US forces at the Joint Readiness Training Centre in Louisiana. It's a first for British troops in over a decade. Ali Gibson reports from Exercise Rattlesnake.
3: Apaches circle overhead. Engineers and heavy weapons help clear the way. Insurgents have occupied this village. It's down to B Company 3 rifles to move them out. The Joint Readiness Training Centre at Fort Polk is one of the world's best urban training areas. You can live fire within buildings here. A special absorbent concrete cuts the risk of ricochet. Major Michael Corper is the chief of current operations.
1: We have Hollywood-type replicated effects uh, of explosions, car bombs going off. We have uh, simulators on strings that when they shoot an RPG, you'll actually see something fly through the air. It is as realistic as we can make it.
3: This is role play for war on an epic scale. After the live fire, there's a blank force-on-force exercise with 17 life-size villages and hundreds of role players who act as mayors, police chiefs, even journalists. And the troops face a live enemy played by an American battalion... Captain Paul Ciphers from First 509th Infantry is the insurgent commander.
2: We kind of
5: fight, you know, similar something to to ISIS or uh, you know Al Qaeda, which is uh, combines things we're seeing in Iraq and Afghanistan with uh, IEDs, technical vehicles, and various other
0: small arms that insurgents are using.
3: For riflemen Christian Sparks and Rory Goldie, Exercise Rattlesnake is a completely oh, fresh we approach.
1: We usually just come up against
3: an enemy that's going to be in one place, and one place only. A lot of people want it. An enemy that you can fight against rather than just find. An exercise back in Britain, pretty much know what the enemy are going to do because all exercises are the same. Over here, they're fearful, so we have no idea what they're going to do to us. 50,000 Americans train here every year, preparing for Iraq and Afghanistan. Three rifles are embedded in the US Army's 4 5 Infantry Brigade Combat Team. For B Company OC Major Chris Dad and Colonel Martin Frank, the brigade's Deputy Commander of Operations, this practice for coalition is invaluable.
2: We get the excellent opportunity of seeing how another army does things and we can pick up some lessons about how they do things, how they use their resources and how they go about their training. So we can learn a lot from what they're doing and also the exercise is so well resourced. It's a, an excellent opportunity.
3: There's no
1: doubt there will be another hotspot somewhere in the world that we'll have to deploy. And there's uh, also, uh, without a doubt, that we'll be doing it with our coalition partners. And so the, uh, the multinational, the coalition flavour that uh, this rotation offers is just outstanding.
3: This is the start of something new. Later this summer, another British regiment will embed with their American colleagues here on a larger rotation, ensuring the special relationship stays strong. Ali Gibson for BFBS in Louisiana.
0: So uh, Christopher, a three-para going out to do the same thing this summer. If that goes well, we're told it'll be a regular thing.
1: It's always been a regular thing. A mm, more mean,
0: regular thing, then. I mean, it's, a,
1: it's, it's another regular, regular, regular thing. Um, <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being regular, uh, is there? I mean, all forces, I mean, all the American, American and British forces, mm. uh, all three services uh, uh, operated together in the harshest circumstances. I mean, one of the interesting things on this exercise is the structure of the uh, of, of housing and uh, the buildings. Mm. Uh, if you fire around the building, and you, you take chunks out of it. You can't out of this thing. And it's it's a safety thing, but it's also uh, just keep firing. You just keep firing at the place the last guy fired at. Now, I don't know what that does for them. Hmm. But, you know, it's, it's one of the things they simply have to do. If you look at the RAF at the moment, the RAF is flying... Uh, I think about a quarter of its... No, maybe a quarter of it uh, is flying hours with American forces at the moment. If you look what they're flying uh, and operating with special forces now, maybe in Libya, certainly in Iraq, certainly in uh, going on to the Syrian border, they're operating mainly with American forces. So it's there's an, there's an intense training role for the for operating together. You learn, you learn language. Americans use a different language or we use a different language for instructions and commands Mm. and and retrievals, etc. And so when they do operate in these sort of lousy situations like uh, Syria and Iraq and maybe Libya, um, they're used to operating with them. It's not like the Second World War, they sort of bunch. Mm. So they come along, what are you doing here?
0: Uh, let's talk about uh, Virtus, this, uh, this new kit that's being uh, used. It's lighter helmet, streamlined body armour, detachable spine that can distribute the weight of a soldier's kit between their hips and their back. Sounds pretty good.
1: It does sound pretty good, but it's, 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 it's another uh, uh, example where if you send people to war for any length of time you get the most remarkable changes in the sort of equipment that they're using. It is the time when the... um, So this is perhaps a result of Afghanistan, is it? It it is a result of Afghanistan. You look at the average uh, kit that the person we see film, and we're there sometimes, uh, that a soldier will carry. And you realise you've got to do something about it, and this is when the inventors get together. um, And they use techniques which are now actually being used by Formula One uh, um, uh, racing, uh, racing engineers as well. This thing has passed around, and the and the British, and the Israelis, about neck and neck. And what do you they, think
0: the next development's got to be in terms of kit?
1: I think it's probably going to be medical, hmm. uh, and well, it'll it stemming will be. blood flows or something like that. It yeah, Well, I mean, the ultimate is is, is self healing light wounds. Hmm. Um, and that 's already on the cards the experiment uh, with that, but eventually you know you get you, you go to war and you don 't notice the don 't notice what you 're carrying but most important, you've got the stamina to carry it.
0: Well, let's stay stateside now. Um, This week, the race to become the next president of the United States hotted up when Americans went to the polls for Super Tuesday. Republican Donald Trump and Democrat Hillary Clinton have taken major steps forward, claiming their party's presidential nominations. Well, they've both won the backing of seven states. Simon Marks from Feature Story News joins us from Washington. Hello, Simon. Hello, Kate. So, Super Tuesday all wrapped up. Uh, Does Defence figure at all or is it all about Hillary's email accounts and his hair?
5: Uh, Well, I think it is uh, predominantly about a whole raft of issues that traditionally would not be making headlines in an American uh, political race. Donald Trump particularly and his Republican colleagues on that side of the aisle spent the last few days of the campaign leading up to Super Tuesday very much in the gutter, exchanging personal insults with one another. The size uh, of Donald Trump's hands Hmm. became a central issue, as reported by the American television networks. But look, he does talk a lot uh, about the military He insists that he's going to make it bigger and stronger than ever before, though he provides no details of precisely how he might do that. He has also said on the campaign trail uh, that when he is President of the United States, America will be engaged, as he put it, in a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding, although, again, he hasn't explained precisely what he means by that, but certainly he is projecting an image of being uh, a tough guy in the White House and a tough guy who is going to help the military, both people in active service and also veterans, because he's talking extensively about the need uh, to tighten things up at the Veterans Administration. So, So
0: how is all that kind of thing going down with the military?
5: Well, look, I mean, the military in this country, you're talking about 1.4 million people in active service. It's not monolithic. Uh, However, by most yardsticks and measurements, the military tends to lean Republican. Uh, This, of course, is a very, very unusual race because the Republican Party is split right down the middle. Right now, we're waiting uh, for Mitt Romney, the last man who ran for the presidency on a Republican ticket, to come out and publicly explain why he is desperate to make sure that Donald Trump should be the next, should not be the next Republican uh, mm-hmm. to run for the presidency. So within the military, as within other uh, Republican uh, communities across the country, there is a split over whether Donald Trump's vision of the future uh, is the one to embrace or whether they should be going after a more mainstream or even uh, more conservative but experienced politician. So this is a this is a political party with a massive, massive internal problem on its hands.
1: i tell you what, just bring that over into the United Kingdom or or, or, or continental Europe uh, for, for the moment, Simon. I was over in Brussels, and they were saying, for God help us, if Trump becomes Commander-in-Chief, it's not so much what he might do, it's the fact that we can't even work out why he would be Absolutely. thinking the way he is. And that is a serious thing if you're sort of dull, boring in NATO. The other thing, talking about the, the, the military... Uh, We don't, in this country, spend so much attention on the veterans as Americans do. A veteran is a very big political issue in almost every small town you go to, isn't it?
5: It is a huge issue, and it is one that Donald Trump has really turned to his advantage. I mean, we can focus uh, on the violent language and the insightful ideas that he has espoused on the campaign trail, and of course many people are, but one of the reasons why he's bringing people around him and bringing voters into the tent that usually would not necessarily associate themselves with the Republican Party is that at every rally and every event that he holds, he always talks about veterans, He brings them up to the stage and he says they've had a terrible, terrible deal at the hands of the Obama administration. uh, how
0: how is Hillary Clinton doing on that?
5: Well, I mean, look, I mean, Hillary Clinton is finally breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, She thinks she is definitely going to be the Democrats' nominee. She's put Bernie Sanders' uh, threat, I think, largely uh, to rest Uh, Her problem is going to be that she's running for office, having been Barack Obama's secretary of state. And uh, Donald Trump at every turn is going to say it's Hillary Clinton who, as secretary of state, could have done more to improve things for veterans and to make life clearer uh, and more uh, apparent for serving members of the military in policy terms. and you know, she's not going to be able to escape her record and she's going to have to find a way uh, of very articulately defending it uh, as this campaign moves into uh, the next stage.
0: If you were a betting man, uh, Simon, just, just a, <laughs> <laughs> well, w- a
4: one-word wo- <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> answer. Okay. If, it were, if the decider were commander-in-chief, how would the American people vote at the moment, do you think?
5: Uh, Right now, if the election was held today, Hillary Clinton, I think, would be elected president. If you had said to me six months ago Donald Trump is going to be the Republican candidate, I would have laughed out loud on the air. So I put an enormous public health warning on everything now.
0: Simon Marks from Future Story News, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Christopher, before we go, um, Israel, a new missile system to cover a lot of the Middle East...
1: It's called David Sling as a biblical thing there, David and Goliath, uh, and the Goliath is all the Middle East states that might harm uh, Israel because David's Sling is an anti-missile missile, and it goes into our uh, operational duties on Tuesday. Interesting, the Iranians are now saying Israel is not a threat because Israel's not a state; therefore, it's a terrorist organisation. Therefore, um, it's a threat.
0: And there we shall leave it. Thank you for listening. We'll be back the same time next week, but from me, Kate Chabot. Bye bye for now.
4: The best of
5: British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas.
0: This is BFBS Radio 2. Cameron.